we're in the third week of our Colossians series, and we're looking at the implications of what it means to share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, and we celebrated that at Easter. We share in that, so now what? It's a wonderful truth, but what does it mean? How does it apply to our daily lives? I believe that many of us who follow Christ get tripped up because we never really grab hold of the reality of the resurrection. It wasn't just Jesus who rose from the dead. He was the first to rise, but we rise with him. Our souls now, that the day we receive Christ as Savior and Lord, when he rescues us from sin, and our bodies later when we see him face to face. So that's why we're exploring the book of Colossians, because this letter answers those questions. But we need to look at a little context first. Paul's writing this letter in prison uh, somewhere between AD 50 and 65. And evidently, he's heard from his co-labor, Epaphras, that there is a pretty nasty heresy, a false teaching that's leaked into the church and is doing, man, is doing a tremendous amount of damage. Uh, uh, Colossae was a very influential and wealthy Roman city, much like ours, and very, very worldly. All kinds of cults and, uh, you know, a whole melting pot of religious beliefs and perspectives. So Paul and his, his co-worker Timothy combated this false teaching by emphasizing the supremacy of Christ and insisting that true spiritual growth comes from Jesus, not some secret knowledge that only a few had as this heresy was teaching. We don't know a ton about this false teaching, but we do know that it didn't regard Christ as paramount to true belief. It wasn't, the, it wasn't that we are in Christ, and that's how we define ourselves and identify ourselves as Christians. It's we are in Christ, and we add a bunch of other stuff in order to follow Christ um, in a way that's honoring to him. So this heresy taught that spiritual growth is all about what you put into your walk with Christ. It's about work. So the burden to grow in Christ is on the person in this heresy. It's, it's not on God. They taught unnecessary and unhealthy self-denial and strange teachings like the worship of angels and other such weird things. So Paul's saying in this letter, you don't need any more spiritual power. You have all you need in sharing in the resurrection of Christ. You have all you need and then some. So don't listen to these silly notions from these false teachers. As we continue in Colossians tonight, we're gonna make a turn. In chapters one and two, we hear more of uh, the theological background behind sharing in the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. And now in chapters three and four, we get to the practical issue of how we walk out this death with Christ and resurrection with him. Paul is revealing the mystery of life in Christ through this sharing of his finished work on the cross and rising from the dead. In contrast to this secret knowledge or power reserved for the spiritual elite that the heretics were espousing. This mystery was hidden in ages past, but now it's revealed to all. It's not something that's only available to the few or those who have got all their spiritual check boxes taken care of. It's available to all who call on Jesus the mystery has been revealed, and we said that that's why Paul uses words like hidden and treasure and mystery in this letter, because I believe it's almost tongue-in-cheek, a bit of sarcasm. Hey, the mystery is Christ. It's not all this other stuff that you're hearing. Tonight, we can understand how to walk out the resurrected life when we live out our new glory, our new authority, 
and we put on our new garment. So let's pray to that end tonight. Lord, as we jump into this letter, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you that contained in it is your will for us. It's your love letter to us. It's your marching orders to us. Lord, it's your victory song for us. Lord, and it's life. It's your breath. And we worship you for it. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted tonight. As we read it, would you stir our hearts and quicken our minds to focus on you? We want all you have for us, Holy Spirit. We want all you have for us. And we know that you are by no means tame and you want to do way more good for us and in us than we can possibly imagine. So together with the mind of Christ, we welcome that. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump into Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible or your phone. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this speaks to our new glory, that we have a glory. And we all know what glory is instinctively, don't we? Glory is what you feel when you're watching a Buckeye game, when you're in the horseshoe. It's what those players feel when they're down there, where they can't even, they can't even hear one another call the snap. Because it's so loud. That's what an audible it is. They'll, they'll, they'll raise their hands or they'll kick their feet to indicate that it's time to start the play. So that's glory. There's a certain glory that the Buckeyes have that we don't, right? That none of us are ever going to experience in, that, in, in those terms. But in Christ, we have a new glory that far exceeds anything we could possibly comprehend. And that's what's spoken of here. And what's now hidden will one day be revealed. While right now we don't see Christ enthroned at the right hand of God, although he is, and we haven't been raised to new life in Christ bodily yet, we still have these earth suits, we know that we're still able to live by faith in this life as ambassadors in a heavenly embassy on earth called the church. Not a building or a denomination or an association but the people who call Jesus Lord all over the world that meet in huts and shacks and most of which will never meet. The majority of Christians don't meet in buildings like this. So that's what we're talking about, the capital C church. So when Paul says in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. I get the picture of an embassy, an embassy doing business on foreign soil. You see, when an ambassador represents their embassy. They have their country's business in mind, even though they're on foreign soil. They have their country's financial gain in mind, their military priorities in mind. They represent all those things. Their heart is for their motherland. They're focused on the motherland, though they spend their day-in, day-out life oftentimes oceans away. We're to have heaven's agenda in our minds and hearts. Heaven's business is what should be the work of our hands. Heaven's focus should be our heart. 
Although our day-to-day lives are lived in our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our world, we aren't called to withdraw. We're called to come together with this body, this embassy, so to speak, representing heaven on earth's soil. But we know one day we're going to go home. And this embassy called the church is a little piece of heaven on planet earth until we get there. And the power it has is way beyond what we know and experience. There's some pretty powerful results that come out of this ambassador embassy living because of our new resurrected status. Let's read about it. Colossians 3 verse 5. Listen to this. This is radical. Because of our resurrected status, because we live in this new embassy called the church, a piece of heaven on earth, here's what we can do. This is amazing. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices." You know, the greedy person gets themselves in all kinds of idolatry, don't they? They pursue the object of their greed, whether it's money, sex, or power, and all of it is in an effort to somehow find satisfaction outside of God, which is impossible. That's why you have to keep doing it more and more and more because it was never made to satisfy. We're made to find our satisfaction in Christ. But we all have this greedy monster inside of us, don't we? The only difference between us and those who don't know Jesus is that we can strip off the old nature because of what we read a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 11. There it says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. So we have divine power through Christ and our shared resurrection with him that we didn't earn. Do you believe that, that all of those struggles and sins are not ours to suffer through because we have a divine power and endurance and patience to persevere that doesn't come from ourselves. It's an act of grace. It gives us the ability to strip off this greed that kills our humanity, breaks our relationships, and destroys our union with God. One of the specific things Paul mentions that we can put on is sexual purity. The reason why this is such a big deal to God is that he wants to establish a holy kingdom that requires both purity in worship and relationships. We worship God through our relationships, and purity is clearly for our good. It protects us. It brings more satisfaction and fulfillment into our lives because our relationships, we're not using people, we're loving them. It protects our children in the generations, and it helps grow healthy communities. It's been God's command since the very beginning, and it's throughout the whole Bible. Our sexuality is very important to God. It's part of our foundational moment, the moment we come out of the womb, and our gender is pronounced. We are made in God's image as male and female, and what we do with our sexuality is sacred. It matters. At the end of our talk tonight, we'll look at the will of God. Specifically, we'll, we'll look at four places in the Bible where it says something is the will of God. And one of those we'll see is sexual purity. But all the, dangers, uh, all the dangerous sins Paul mentions, they're all related to greed that we just read. That desire to use stuff in people instead of find satisfaction in God. 
Whether we're talking about sexual immorality, filthy language, anger, rage, malice, or any of those mentioned. As ambassadors of heaven, we not only have a new glory that comes out of our resurrected status, we also have a new authority. We have a new authority. Can we say that together? New authority. Very good. Just making sure you guys are awake. How many of you celebrated Mother's Day today? What'd you do? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. How many of you ran for your Mother's Day? Man, whatever happened to like a breakfast or something? That's pretty intense. That's awesome. Man, all right. It's just giving you a breather. I could tell you were snoozing on me, all right? That had nothing to do with anything. New authority. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being made, renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So in the previous verses, Paul's sharing the negative. So here's, what's to, here's what you need to tear off, to take off, to abstain from. But here, he's saying, here's what you need to pursue. He's sharing in the positive sense. Here's what you need to put on. And what he shares, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is absolutely jaw-dropping. I mean, this truth should cause us to jump up and down or to giggle like two little kids trying not to laugh in church. And I've seen some of you, especially you young life people up there, you guys will get to giggling. And I'm like, man, what are they talking about? It's probably so much better than what I'm talking about. And I mean that. That's not like the sarcastic teacher backhanded rebuke. I truly mean that. Um, So it's a big deal. The fact that we're renewed in the image of our creator. That's amazing. But we've got to do a little digging first to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. Way, way back, pagan rulers, it was common in just about every culture for pagan rulers to claim deity, and because of that, they were able to define good and evil. And they were worshipped and they ruled with an iron fist. Think North Korea. But that's not the way God intended it. If we go back to the very beginning, it says that we were created in God's image and that we would rule over creation. Specifically, it says, God says, subdue the earth and rule over it. God's saying that the task thought only to belong to elite kings is now for all of his people. It's a big deal. I love what the Bible Project folks say about this. You guys should look that up, the Bible Project. All kinds of great videos and resources and that kind of stuff. Um, They address what this new authority looks like, and I like their explanation. They say that it looks like gardening. You go, what's so authoritative about gardening? What they mean is that gardening is the harnessing of raw potential of earth to grow food, families, neighborhoods, businesses, strong relationships with God, and all that good stuff. But in the beginning, God gave humans the ability to use authority, either for good, you know, to help people, or to fulfill their own agendas and get others to worship them. Clearly, we all naturally want to do the latter. We want to use our authority for selfish gains. And if we turn on the news, sometimes we see authority used for good, but more often than not, we see it used for bad, don't we? I mean, there are, even though we're fallen, even though we've made this sinful choice to, make, uh, to use our authority in a way that benefits us selfishly, there's still a tremendous amount of good that's done. But for the most part, it's selfish gain and destruction. I think we'd all agree. 
But our sin didn't have the last word. Healing came through Christ. He put himself underneath others. We read about him washing feet, loving his enemies, and loving and respecting those that others despised and rejected. Jesus confronted evil by taking it on himself. And Jesus is the image of God. So he marks the new human. He took the sin that we deserve, and now he's created this new humanity that all of us have access to simply by crying out for him to rescue us from our sin. It's this, this redo, so to speak, that he's given us, this new life is what we've been craving, but we haven't been able to find on our own. And the Bible ends with this picture of a new humanity in the book of Revelation, where the kingdom of God comes and all of earth is restored to the way it was meant to be all along before sin entered the world. So what's now a spiritual reality that works its way out in our lives, it'll be a physical reality all around us. And we're to work and live with that vision in mind to establish this kingdom of new Jesus-led humanity until he comes back and finishes the job completely. So he, through us, is getting this work started of creating this new humanity of Jesus followers who change the world and bring it back to the way it was meant to be all along. We're getting the job started through him, and then he's going to come finish it. Isn't that the way it always is with dad, you know, with a parent? They're the ones who've got to finish the work. You start the job, and it's like, man, you didn't, like, come here, let me, you know. That's how it's going to be with him, uh, except he won't be nearly as angry and, you know, just ridiculous as I can get with my children. This, we now live both in the hope of this future reality and also this future grace that marks our new resurrected lives as heaven's ambassadors and allows us to throw off things that get in the way of our love for God. And that leads to our next point. We not only have a new glory because we're made in his image, we have a new authority. We also have a new garment. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. So we have this new garment which oftentimes in the Bible, uh, a garment is used as a metaphor for a new identity, a transformed nature. Now, we have to be very careful here because it's easy to adopt what has been called the debtor's theology when we look at the passages like this that describe righteous behaviors. You know, we see behaviors mentioned here like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving others. The debtor's theology says we do this on our own. It's, it's, on, it's by our effort. It says that we're able to do these efforts because Jesus, we're able to complete these actions, rather, because Jesus died for us, and now we owe him the rest of our lives. We have this tremendous debt that we need to pay back. You even hear songs about that. It sounds good because it's true in one sense. We owe Jesus everything, and of course, it's always good to be thankful for the cross, but there's a twofold problem with this perspective. Number one, we can never repay him back because we're full of crap. Right? When we do right, we often do so with mixed motives. If we read the Bible, 
Oftentimes it's with a haughty spirit, or man, I'm glad I got that done today, right? Or we, read the, we don't read the Bible and we feel like somehow we've lost our standing with God and now we've increased the debt all the more. The problem is that it's all sin. We sin all the time, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, because we're broken. We're redeemed by Christ, but, but we are fundamentally flawed because of sin. The second problem with the debtor's theology is that anything I do that reflects this new garment, this new identity I have in Christ, is all because of his grace. It's not like somehow I've paid him back a little bit because I've performed a righteous act. Paul explains it in Philippians 3.12. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, not that I have already attained all this, obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So this is the picture I get. Jesus takes hold of me as I live out as an ambassador in this heavenly embassy called the church, laboring along with you and saints all over the world. He takes hold of me, pulling me towards this future grace where I'm going to see him and be with him forever. It's already reserved for me in heaven, the Bible says. So he takes hold, I take hold of that for which has already taken hold of me. So that means when I give this message, I do so knowing that it's his grace that has grabbed a hold of me and is allowing me to teach. And when I raise my kids and interact with my wife, it's his grace that pulls me forward. When I uh, choose purity instead of lust, it's his grace that pulls me forward. When I love the poor, it's his grace that pulls me forward. It's not like if I choose purity over lust, somehow I've paid him back and I'm less in debt. I'm more in debt. With every righteous, just more and 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 more more debt piles up. The grace that saves me and you is the grace that sustains us. So I can pray for grace for this next breath and the next one and the next one. And I can pray for grace to finish this message. And I can pray for grace to have meaningful conversation with you after church. And I can pray for grace for a meeting I'm going to have in an hour And I can pray for grace that I'll rest well tomorrow on my day off. That's like the typical day off for pastors, Mondays. It's all because of his grace. That's it. And when we struggle and when we sin, it's his grace that forgives us because he has already paid and we can never pay him back. And he sees us as righteous, made in the very image of God. That's why we can get back on our feet. Is somebody listening to a different sermon right now? That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Like, man, he stinks. Oh, I forgot to put my headphones in. Or maybe they didn't forget to put his headphones in. Uh, The last two verses we're going to read tonight move us into uh, some more specifics about God's will. It says in Colossians 3, verse 16, or at least the last two verses from Colossians, It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the message of Christ that dwells in us is his word, and it's contained in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit makes it more than words on a page. He makes it food and medicine and life for our souls. 
And it's to result in gratitude expressed both in music from our lips and song in our heart. We work hard for the Lord and we do everything in his name and we already know from what's already been said, we do so because of his strength working through us, not our own. So we see in verse 17 that whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord. We do it all. When we're walking as ambassadors of heaven because of the resurrection through this new, new authority, new glory, and new garment, we can do whatever we think is best. Do you hear that? We don't have to obsess over, Jesus, do you want me to park in this spot or that spot? Or do you want me to go to this school or that school? Or the list goes on and on. You want me to, to go on a jog on Mother's Day or you want me to, you know, go to Denny's? You know, whatever. You don't have to obsess over those things because when we walk in this way, we have the wisdom of God. I love what Dr. Emerson Ingrick says in his book, The Four Wills of God. You might remember his other book, Love and Respect. It's the same author. Uh, he points out four specific instances where scripture uses the phrase, this is the will of God. And on the outset, I want to, uh, me and the author both agree that the will of God is in much more than four places in scripture. The whole Bible is the will of God. But what the author's saying is that if we obey these four specific wills, they offer us a compass that when we follow these things, we can walk out uh, all the other aspects of God's will. Put another way, if we don't follow these, we won't follow the rest. And here they are. They seem to get special attention. The first is salvation. It says in John 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus is the substitute for our sin. He became sin for our sake, and he rose from the dead to give us the life we've always wanted, the life we were created to live so we know that's his will. He wants everyone to receive him. Sexual purity, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So it's pretty straight up, right? Avoid sexual immorality. I said we would, we would get to this. A lot of heartache and damage is done both to ourselves and others if we don't avoid sexual immorality. Just talk to someone from a divorced home like myself. And you'll hear about it. Sexual morality either protects and grows or destroys the generations. The fate of the next generation is determined by our pursuit or lack thereof of purity. It's either protective or destructive. It's a huge deal. And also next is gratitude. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're to give thanks no matter what because as we've already said tonight that the reality of a shared resurrection with Christ and what we, what we have with him is something to be grateful for. That's why it says in scripture that he wants us to give with a grateful heart. He wants it all to be done with gratitude because the Lord loves that. Next, finally, we're to submit to authority. 1 Peter 2 verse 13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You know, unfortunately, it's, it's popular to buck the system. We all try to buck the system in small ways and big ways, whether it's going over the speed limit or whatever. We all do it. Uh, 
But we need to keep in mind the authorities mentioned here in 1 Peter are Roman authorities, and they were way more oppressive than we can imagine in this country, and they were still called to submit to those authorities. Evidently, according to this passage, obeying and honoring authority shows respect for God and actually improves our witness, our reputation to others to give us a stronger testimony to the world. So these four wills allow us to apply Colossians 3.17, which again says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. So notice it says, whatever you do, we have freedom. We don't have to obsess over God's will. These four wills are a great place to start because once we allow God to uh, uh, lead us in these four areas, then we're freed up to chart our own course based on what we think is best. You see, when we put on our new glory, our new authority, and this new garment through living out these four wills, we share the mind of Christ and we can make God-honoring wise decisions. All too often we ask, what is God's will for my life? And again, to quote Emerson in this book, the better question is, what is God's will? When we find out what pleases him, we find out his will for our life. Doesn't work the other way. We now have the compass through these four wills, and it is a great place to start. The wills are, these four wills are on the screen here. If I could uh, go to the next slide just to put them all in one place uh, so you can see them and be thinking about them. Because I want to take a moment uh, together just to pray on your own. Lord, where are you trying to love on me and grow me related to these four areas? Because we all struggle with them, don't we? We all struggle with all four. Uh, and maybe, Brandon, if they can't fit on the same slide, we'll just cycle. That'd be great, yeah. But let's just take a moment now to, to pray for these things. Because if we start here, then we're right in the will of God. We're walking with him as we allow him to grow us in these areas and the rest of his will becomes very clear. Okay, so let's do that now. Let's just take a moment and pray on our own.
an amazing, life-giving experience we would have if we allowed you to grow in us this submission to authority where our reputation among those who don't know you was, Lord, to be clean and respectable and draw others to you, Lord. If we called on you for salvation, Lord, so that we might live your life in us. Lord, if we allowed you to build in us a grateful heart instead of complaining, how it would lift our spirits and those around us. Lord, how if we pursued, allowed you to help us to pursue purity instead of the selfish use of others, how it would increase our love for people and desire to sacrifice for them in your name. We do pray for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll open up a time to pray up front here uh, over these four areas, and at the end of the service, we'll put these back on the, uh, put, back, put the slides back up to help jog our memories. So you can come up here for prayer, uh, or you can pray with someone that you're sitting around. Uh, I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, let me go ahead and invite Deborah up here. And at this time, we're going to take our offering. And this is a time for those who are regular with us to give. Please don't feel compelled if this is your first time here. Just let, let the basket pass. But if you've been here 10 times or more, you have to put in at least $100 every week. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Uh, but no, at least throw in this Connect card. You can write down your prayer request, any information that you want from us. And let's pray that we give with a grateful heart. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us, how gracious you are. We understand that it all belongs to you. It all belongs to you, all our money, all our resources. You're the one who gave it to us. Lord, thank you for the uh, way money brings dignity to us and others as it gives us a place to live, cars to drive. Lord, the way that we are able to uh, receive those blessings because of work and how that's satisfying to you. Help us to do and receive all of those things with gratitude. So we want to give to you now with a grateful heart. Please use these resources, Lord, to help people all around the world come to know and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.